This podcast is brain powered by the University of Sydney. We are controlling transmission. Sleek Geeks, Dr. Carl and Adam Spencer. You're listening to the Sleek Geeks podcast with me, Adam Spencer, my good friend, Dr. Carl Kruzelnitsky, and a man I've never met before. Sitting next to me in a, I describe it as a blue shirt with a nice checked pattern. His name is Grant. How are you, Grant? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me today. What is your full name? So my full name is Grant Hill Cawthorn, and I'm a medical virologist and I work in public health. R- r- you, you possibly know a little bit about this whole Ebola thing that's going on. I know a little bit and I've been constantly talking about it for the last few months. So well, Why don't we constantly talk about Ebola for the next 20 minutes? Carl, what do you think? I think it's wonderful. I'd like to point out that Grant is both a medical doctor, so he can go clinical, and a medical researcher. So he covers both sides of the fence. Okay, let's start from the very beginning. What is Ebola? So it's a virus, which means that it is relatively unstable, it's quite fragile, and it is usually within animals. So it's normally found within bats, usually within Africa, and circulates quite happily among bats. Occasionally, however, for unknown reasons, it spills over into other animals. So that can be antelope or non-human primates, or as we're seeing in West Africa at the moment, human primates. It seems like a particularly nasty virus to get? It is. For humans? So there's actually very new evidence that has shown about half of the people that get it will actually not have any symptoms and actually build up antibodies. But the the rest of them that get it, because it goes into your body, it causes such a big immune response and your body effectively goes overboard in attacking it, it generates lots and lots of these chemicals in your body that then cause various organs to start to break down and fail, which is why you get the diarrhea and the vomiting and the bleeding that you see. Is this the so-called cytokine storm? It is. So it's it's a bit like, we, we also saw this in Spanish flu, so the big 1918 flu caused a very similar thing. So these viruses tend to hit the healthiest among us, which is why healthy adults tend to get hit, because they've got the best immune systems and therefore produce the biggest cytokine storm. So, so strictly, it's not the virus that attacks my vital organs, it's my body's response to the virus is so intense and the things that my body throws at the virus have a deleterious effect on my vital organs. Is that what you're saying? It it is true. The virus does do some damage. So it does damage, for example, the linings of the blood vessels and it quite happily replicates in them. So some of that fragility that you get within the blood vessels um, is part of this. But yeah, certainly many of the symptoms that you get, the huge fever, the encephalitis-type symptoms, all of those are because of your immune system. How does someone get it in the first place? So it's relatively hard to transmit. The virus is produced in all of your bodily fluids and it requires those bodily fluids to actually come in direct contact with your mucous membrane. So that's your eye, your nose, your mouth, all get through a break in the skin. Only by doing that can the virus actually enter your body and then it has to travel around your body to the sites where it attacks, which is why you have this what we call an incubation period, which is where you don't show symptoms and you're not infectious before you actually finally get the fever, which is the first symptom. What if the virus was on my skin and I did not touch that skin with my finger and put it into my mouth? I just left it on my skin. 
what would happen? So the virus is quite fragile, so it can last for a matter of hours on your skin or on any surface. The most we think is that it could last perhaps a number of days, but within a blood clot. That would be the only way it could survive. But if you just got it on your skin and you washed it off with normal household detergents, then it would be gone and it wouldn't cause any uh, problems. And, and it, 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 the, the death rates from Ebola, its intensity seems quite high for a virus. Is that right? Yes, and there's sort of two parts to that. One is because it causes very severe diarrhea, it causes breakdown of blood vessels and bleeding, you get very high death rates. So it's what we call virulent. But part of that issue is because of the healthcare services in the countries where it actually occurs. So in West Africa, we've been seeing death rates of between 50 and 60% just because you can't get the medical attention to those people. So many of the people who have then ended up in developed countries and got good fluid resuscitation, being given things to correct their salts in their body and given good nutrition, that death rate probably goes down to around 10%. Because what you find is that somebody comes in with Ebola and they're both losing fluid by vomiting and diarrheaing away and also getting some edema in their legs, hanging onto fluid. So they've got all these crazy electrolytes. So that what you do is you get a needle, you stab them, you put a plastic pipe on it, you join it up to a bag of fluid, by that, you've used up the health budget for that country, for that person, for that year in one go. And you've got no more money left to do the uh, checking their electrolytes and the second and the third, fourth of blood, and they'll just die because you don't have the money. Because, for, for example, in the United States, there's been a series, haven't there, of healthcare workers who've come in contact with Ebola and the vast bulk have survived? All of them have survived. So, so there were two healthcare workers who were working abroad and were transported back and they both survived. The two nurses that were infected by the Liberian patient, they've both survived. And by all accounts, Dr. Spencer, who's a chap in New York, who was working as a doctor out there, is also doing well now. Oh, hooray for Spencer. Now, what's so special about bats? So there's, there's a lot of research going into this because we know that bats are the harbingers of many, many different viruses. So, like in Australia, Hendra virus. Yep, but, Hendra virus. But is it true that bats carry everything but don't get sick? Yep, so they show no symptoms whatsoever. So Bats can carry viruses but don't get sick from it. And they almost have cohabitation with those viruses in the same way you have cohabitation with the strep to streptococcus and the staphylococcus and all those kind of bacteria that live in your body happily live with you. Bats have the same thing. They can wow. happily live with these viruses. And so this research you're talking about, if we can work out what it is in bats that means you can be in contact with Ebola and it not affect you, that might give some insight into how we can create a vaccine to fight the disease, for example? Yeah, exactly. So there's something in bats that either stops, say, the blood vessels getting infected or their immune system doesn't have this cytokine storm, so it doesn't do this over-the-top reaction. And you said we think that in maybe 50% of people who come in contact with Ebola... Well, they carry it, but it doesn't. The cytokine storm doesn't come about, or there's something like that. There's a lot of research that's gone into people who have clearly been in contact or been very close to outbreaks. You measure their antibody levels, and they've got antibodies against Ebola, but at no point did they actually become sick. And we don't yet know whether those people are infectious at all. Would they be 
10% of the population who get infected by Ebola or a, a, a tenth of a thousandth of a percent? What sort of number out of 100 people would have the Ebola virus come into their body, the immune system would kick in, they wouldn't even know they'd had it? How many? There was actually a paper in The Lancet last week that put this at 50%, wow. which is a lot bigger than we, we... We used to think it was 1%, so up until this paper just came out. 50% of people can get the Ebola virus, it can sweep through their body and then be held in the background by the immune system... How about their infectivity? They're not showing symptoms, but can they infect others while they're in the early stages? So this is a big question. So what we don't know is, were they truly asymptomatic or did they have a bit of a fever? Did, you know, did they, were they a bit sick but got better and no one really thought to oh, test Went to bed them? early and, and, and didn't have the vomiting and, thought that, and that could have been their, their, that their crisis. You're on the Sleek Geeks podcast with myself, Adam Spencer, Dr. Carl Kruzielnitsky. You can follow the podcast. You can send us questions to at Sleek Geeks on Twitter and the like. We're talking with Professor Grant, who's just awesome, about Ebola at the moment. So this Ebola outbreak we've had recently. Now, this is not, it's, it's not as though we've just discovered Ebola for the first time, is it? How long has Ebola been around? What is it about the last couple of months that seems to have people so much more concerned than we might have been concerned in the past? So the virus has probably been around forever. We have no idea when it first originated. It was first discovered in 1976, um, and that was through an outbreak that occurred both in the Democratic Republic of Congo and uh, the Sudan next door. That those outbreaks, though, have always occurred in rural areas, usually because people have been eating bushmeat, so they go out and eat bat or antelope, and then they tend to stay within those areas and they don't go any further. What's been really different is there's nothing new about this virus, so all these reports about it being virulent or a mutated virus aren't true. It's just where it hit. So... West Africa, particularly Sierra Leone and Liberia, have had 10 years of civil war. They have just started having democracies develop. They have very little health infrastructure. And so when it hit there, it spread in communities without being seen. So it wasn't diagnosed for three or four months. By the time it was diagnosed, it had spread in fairly mobile populations over to urban cities. And this was the first time we've ever seen Ebola in big urban cities. And when I say cities, I'm talking about cities are very poor, with no sanitation, with huge slum areas. So you can imagine just how quickly a disease like this can spread. It's, it's just the sheer rate of numbers. It's the weight of numbers of the population to with which it has come in contact. Yes. So before it's always been isolated, it's never travelled around, it's been in countries that have expected it and so it's been picked up early. In this case, no one was looking for it, the testing wasn't being done, it was misdiagnosed as cholera to start with and we have actually seen quite a slow response from the world community, which is mm. another issue in so this. With, for example, with regard to AIDS, it took off in the mid-80s and only recently we found out that the key factor that brought it out of the jungle into the human population was the bringing of railway lines into the capital of Congo in the 1920s. That changed... The 1920s? In the 1920s, and then it began to exist in the population of people going back through blood supplies we have, going back to then that we can check for antibodies. So it was the human change. As an example of viruses, if you got all the viruses in the ocean and put them end to end, they would reach... 200 million light years. They would reach <laughs> They would reach 100 times further than the nearest galaxy. So there's all these viruses in the ocean and 
some of them could be deadly to us, and we will never know. We, ne- we don't go into their area. And so the Ebola's been hanging around in this little area, and we went to where it was. It's like going into the ocean where the sharks are, and you get surprised when the sharks eat you. So what what do we know about, have we looked at it at the microbial level? How is it made up? What is it about Ebola? We know what it does to our body and the body's reaction, but what is it about the structure of Ebola? Get geeky, but not too hardcore geeky <laughs> on me here. That, that, that makes it such a tough little bugger. So it's very much down to it being a virus. So viruses always have to rely on taking over other bodies in order to survive. So they lack certain bits of the machinery to allow them to replicate. So they're the ultimate parasite. They're the top of evolution, if you like. Because within this, you've got a simple piece of RNA, so a very simple nucleic acid that's only around 18,000 nucleotides long. And that's just packaged in a small envelope, so a lipid envelope. And that in itself is enough to cause all of this damage. And it's simply because it enters, it's able to enter into lots and lots of cells within your body. And once it's within those cells, it can take over the replication machinery in those cells. It also attacks the key cells that are responsible for your immune system. So we all have what we call an innate immune system, which is made up of cells called macrophages and natural killer cells and quite cool names like that. And those cells are there to produce the chemical response that your body does. So Ebola, a bit like how HIV does, takes over your immune system and it subverts that to its own purpose. And that's the key problem with this virus. Mm. Well, it's amazing the way that it has spread so rapidly and so strongly. Have we attempted in the past to find vaccines for Ebola? Some people have said, possibly, uh, you know, not entirely joking, well, once enough rich Westerners start to die from this, we'll, we'll have a crack at it and we'll probably sort it out. But as long as it's people in rural Africa, we just don't really care. Has there been a concerted effort to find a vaccine for Ebola in the past? So there has been some effort. Um, Margaret Chan actually last week said exactly what you just said, that it's because this has always been an African disease that we've never actually looked for one. With some fairness to drug companies, it's very hard to actually produce a vaccine against something that appears and then disappears fairly quickly. There really hasn't been the need for a vaccine in the past. We know that isolation, good treatment, preventing people from passing it on is enough. So we've ne- because we've never seen an outbreak of this magnitude, we've never needed a vaccine to get it under control. So we also needed to wait for a big enough outbreak for a vaccine to be developed because clinical trials take time. You need enough people infected to actually get the vaccine out there and test it. And we've never been faced with that before. So there's a few factors here. So I don't think it's just because it's an African disease. So are we having a crack at a vaccine as we speak? And is it too early to say, or are there encouraging signs? Are we just throwing the best brains in the world at this at the moment? Or could we be stronger in our response and research to try and find a vaccine? I think in many ways we're seeing quite a robust vaccine response. So there's six vaccines have been developed, two are being taken forward. Already those two have almost finished phase one clinical trials, so that's testing it in healthy humans to check you don't get adverse reactions, and they're about to start in phase two trials from the start of next year. Those trials will be carried out in Africa, um, and we've jumped over a lot of the normal hurdles. So we've only tested it in monkeys so far. We're not doing the big randomized clinical trials that you'd normally expect. So 
There have to be corners cut, but people are really pushing to get this developed so it can have some impact in the current outbreak. You're listening to the Sleep Geeks podcast with Dr. Carl Adam Spencer and Professor Grant. We're running through all things Ebola today. Fascinating conversation. What do you want to ask, Carl? Um, what about quarantine? What, what's the role of quarantine and how is it how easy is it to spread or catch as compared to, say, tuberculosis? So... The one of the, there's a couple of nice things about this disease, um, if you can say there's <laughs> nice things about Ebola. Yeah. One is that you don't have any kind of infectivity when you're non-asymptomatic. Oh, because with some viruses, you can be non-symptomatic but spreading it. Yeah. Okay, not the case with Ebola. So chickenpox, two days before the rash comes out, you've already spread it to other people. Right. Measles, for the last three days before your rash appears, you've already spread it to others. So that is a big problem with viruses. In Ebola, you need to have that fever even before you can actually pass it on. Okay, that, so that's that's good. Yeah, and then? And the, the other key thing is because it isn't airborne, you therefore reduce the amount of people that could be potentially infected. So it's not airborne. So what's the case, say, with tuberculosis? How easy is it to catch TB off somebody? So in TB, if I had come into this room three hours ago and I had tuberculosis and I coughed, I would have produced an aerosol that went up into the air and filled this room with little tuberculous bacteria and they would have hung around for the last three hours. And so you then walk into a room three hours later... Into an empty room. ...and you breathe in that air and you will get infected with TB. Yeah. Wow. And in fact, in Queensland right now, there are six people with multi-drug-resistant tuberculosis, which means that the treatments that we've got for them are nothing. I heard one other thing about Ebola that we are in some ways, in inverted commas, lucky because it is so nasty and kills people reasonably quickly, that in a perverse way limits its ability to yeah. spread because you don't have people who are sick with it giving off it mm -hmm. to other people for months or anything like that. So there's been lots of questions about Ebola becoming more transmissible or mutating in some way to make it worse. Viruses always mutate downwards, so they always become less virulent. And that's for exactly that reason. So if you go back to the Spanish flu again in mm. 1918... Killed more people than World War One. Yes, exactly. So millions around the world, including hundreds of thousands in Australia... Mm that virus became the normal seasonal flu that then hung around in the 1920s up to the 1950s, not killing anywhere near as many. Because it kept mutating down. It mutates down because a virus doesn't want to necessarily kill its host. That can be detrimental to it being passed on person to person. Uh -huh. It wants to keep its host alive and then that host keeps breathing and coughing and vomiting and things and passing it on. So it's not in the virus's interest to become more virulent. So if anything... The greater worry is, will Ebola become less virulent in the future and become effectively an endemic infection that just sits within West Africa and we can never get rid of? Mm -hmm. We're running up towards the end of time, Carl. I'll give you one more question if you'd like to ask Professor Grant something. Suppose I am nursing somebody who has Ebola. Mm -hmm. Do I have to wear the full spacesuit? Or can I just have regular hygiene involving basically washing the hands a lot and making sure that it does not get into my ears, sorry, into my eyes or mouth or anywhere else where the squishy bits are? It's true that if you just cover up all your mucous membranes, that should be enough. But there's human error involved. So ah. what we're now recommending and um, what we've been recommending in Australia from the start, but the CDC has just caught up on, is that you should cover up all your skin just to make sure that you don't get some on your skin and then rub that skin later and put, pick your nose or 
get it anywhere else. So there is going to be full mask, goggles, sort of protection to your neck, a hood and a gown Mm -hmm. with double gloves. And that sort of makes up, that's not the full spacesuit, but it makes up what we'd normally have as what we call the personal protective equipment. The reason why people might want to use a spacesuit instead is simply because that has a respirator inside. So it's a bit cooler, you've got constant fresh air being provided, and it's less stuffy and uncomfortable than all that other But in an emergency, all I'd have to do would be to wear glasses, which I already do anyway, and maybe a face mask, so if they accidentally get really close and sneeze or spit on me, and then basically just wash my hands. If I just kept my mouth shut and wore glasses and did not touch any part of my skin to my mouth, I could basically mask, the, nurse them in the swimming cozies, yeah, providing and, I wash them with hands and, enough. And washed all the rest of your skin because just in case you come in contact. Because people are touching their hands to their mouth. Yeah. That and that's how they get problem. it. And that's probably how the nurses got infected in the United States. And the mm. odds of you, Carl, keeping your mouth shut for an length of period of <laughs> time is it? unlikely. One final question then, Grant. Let's say we don't come up, no, no offence to the people who are trying, let's say we don't come up with a vaccine. I've heard it argued that if we can keep the population of people infected below a certain number for a certain period of time, it'll become manageable and we'll just ride it out. I One figure was quoting sometime early in the new year. Can you talk us through the sort of science, the mathematics of those numbers that we could... Is it possible we could just ride this out? It is if you get the containment of the cases right so it's all down to isolation so we know this virus has what we call an r naught which is the kind of epidemiological number of the number of people infected by each case so in this with this virus it's between one and a half and two and a half people mm-hmm. per person if you can get that down to below one then it means effectively when i'm an infected case i don't infect anyone else on average you can do that by isolating 70 percent of cases so some oh. will get through the gap that's the figure but I heard. as okay. long as you isolate 70 percent of cases you make sure that 70 percent of people are safely buried without anyone becoming infected the virus will start to decrease but we're still a long way away from that in West Africa. The WHO wanted to be doing that by the start of December. We're not going to hit that target. And that's simply because there aren't enough treatment beds out there, there's not enough community centres, and there's not, not enough healthcare workers on the ground to actually do case finding and treat the patients. One final question. When you see, you, this is your world, when you see Ebola, when you <clears throat> look at that virus, do you, do you hate it? Is it evil? Or is there part of your scientific brain that looks at it and goes, that is an amazing creation? There's two parts. There's the fact that I do think it's an amazing creation. It's an amazing feat of evolution, like all viruses are. The second part, though, is it is also a test for us and a symptom of the inequalities that exist within the world. This would never have been a problem if we made sure that countries had basic health care and universal health care. So it's, again, a reminder to us that we leave parts of the world without this kind of supportive infrastructure. I'm Adam Spencer. You are Dr. Carl. How awesome was Professor Grant? Give us your name and title and where you work again for people who want to look you up on the web. So I'm Grant Hill Cawthorn. I'm the lecturer in communicable disease epidemiology at the Marie Bashir Institute at the University of Sydney. I've seen his business card, Carl. It's absolutely massive. Thank you, Grant. Thank you ever so much. Sleep cakes.